You are the only ladies of the household, I hope. Uh, I presume... There's no one else, Your Grace. Quite so. Good day. Good day. Your Grace! Your Grace! Please, wait! May I try it on? Oh, pay no attention to her. It's only Cinderella. Ah, scullery. From the kitchen. It's ridiculous. Impossible. She's out of her mind. Yes, yes, just an imaginative child. Madam, my orders were every maiden. Help my child. confession. I am so gullible that when I found this on the web, and it said this was the original ending that Walt Disney nicked Ixnaid, you know, and redid because of a bad reaction, I believed it. So I spent way too much time on the internet snoping the whole thing. Is that a word? That's now a verb, right? That snopes thing where you can find out what's true and what's false. And then it's not the original ending. This is somebody doing a terrible hoax on us girls. I should have known, as you were all laughing, because um, it couldn't have been. It's too realistic. <laughs> too realistic for Disney, for sure. For Walt Disney, above all, was a storyteller. He knew what J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings, knew. Realistic stories cannot satisfy the human heart. Tolkien, in his essay on fairy stories, argues that fantasy stories, like fairy tales and sci-fi, do satisfy the deep longings of our hearts because they depict characters who live outside of time, escape death, find perfect, unending love, and triumph over evil. Isn't that what we all want? Hugely popular fantasy. As a Christian, Tolkien believed that these stories resonate deeply because they bear witness to an underlying reality. Even if we don't intellectually believe in God or life after death, our heart senses somehow that these things characterize life as it was, as it should be, and as it eventually will be. So the tried and true plot line, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy finds girl, boy and girl live happily ever after, works because we intuitively sense that it is our story. How many of you believed that you were a princess and your parents just kidnapped you and took you away? <laughs> okay, when you were little. I hope you don't believe that still. <laughs> it's taken time to convince my daughters that that is not true. We, but we do sense it is our story, and it is. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Think about it. Creation. God creates us. His love. Fall. We sin. 
and we are separated. Boy loses, girl. Redemption, boy does what he needs to get girl back. Restoration, and they lived happily ever after. And that is the theme of the Bible. That is the plot line of God's entire word. And it is the plot line within every single book of the Bible of which make up the Bible, including the books of Thessalonians, the letters to the Thessalonians that we will be studying in the weeks ahead. The timeless message of Thessalonians, as we will see, is how God made a way by the sending of his son for us, for you and for me, to be brought into the story for which we long. And they lived happily ever after. The timeless challenge to the Thessalonians, and as we will see to you and me, is to recognize and embrace the importance of they lived happily ever after. They lived. Collectively, we are the girl. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 17b to 18, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The message of Thessalonians is not only that God has made a way for us to be brought into the ever after story our soul longs for. It is also the challenge to live together as if we are forever. So it's not only the message of how God has made a way for us to be brought into forever, it's also the challenge to live together as if we are forever. Now, I know that's a huge mouthful and potentially confusing. So as an intro, we're going to unpack this. And if you still don't get it, we'll unpack it in the weeks ahead. But let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the overall story of redemption. We thank you for the longing you have put in our hearts, um, that intuitive sense that we belong to a greater story. I pray that you would open our eyes to the truths, um, even though this is an introduction, that your word would come alive, that you would change hearts and minds and lives, even in this moment, because of the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So first, ready? Buckle your seatbelt. First, the message of Thessalonians is that God has made a way for us to be brought into forever, to live happily ever after. And by the way, it begins now. This is the message God sent to the Thessalonians. It was to them, but it is for us. He has preserved it in his word by the Holy Spirit because it is a message for us today. So how it begins, it's 20 years after the death and resurrection of God's son, Jesus Christ. God sent his gospel, these 20 years later, to Thessalonica through the apostle Paul and his co-laborers, his co-missionaries, if you want to call them, Silas and Timothy. The gospel, as some of you should be asking, so what is the gospel, Patty? I won't make you raise your hand, but I would guess that most of you are like, could you just tell me the gospel in a sentence? Here we go. The gospel is the good news that God has fulfilled his promise to restore paradise lost when sin entered the world. The gospel is the good news that God has fulfilled his promises throughout scripture to restore us to the paradise we lost by sinning against God. John 3.16, the gospel in a verse. God so loved the world that he gave his, say it with me, gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish 
but have eternal life. There's a reason why John 3.16 is everywhere, including football stadiums, because it is the gospel in a verse. God sent his son to live the life we cannot and then die the death that we deserve, granting eternal life to those who trust in him. Paul never got over this good news. He gave his life to proclaim it to the world. And by the hand of the Holy Spirit, the writings of Paul give us several scriptures that are the gospel in a verse. Listen to these as he wrote to the church at Corinth. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Listen to also 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Ladies, this is good news. Christianity is not good advice. Now, if you have come to this Bible study because you need some good advice, you're not going to find a place of better advice. But Christianity is far more than advice. It is good news. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, on the difference between good advice and good news, says, Advice is counsel about something to do, and it hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. News is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. Now, if you're like me, you like picture books. So I'm going to draw an illustration that Tim Keller recounts um, an example by Dr. Lloyd-Jones to illustrate the difference between advice and good news. Say a king goes out into a battle against an invading army to defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends good newsers back to the kingdom to say, we won. It's been defeated. It's all done. Respond in joy. Live in peace. That's good news. But if an invading army breaks through, the king sends back advisors that say, we're going to have to fight for our lives. So you and infantry over here, you and air support over here, and you better fight hard because your life depends on it, and so then hope for the best. Dr. Jones explains that every other religion says, you know, if you want your salvation, you're going to have to fight for your life. Here are the rituals, here are the laws, here are the regulations. Fight for your life and hope for the best. That is not good news. That's good advice. The gospel is good news. A holy God sent Paul to Thessalonica with the good news that he sent his perfect son to the cross so that a way was made to defeat sin and death. It's been done for you. It's been done in a way without destroying you because you and I are sinners and we deserve to be defeated. God also granted not just that the gospel would go to Thessalonica, but also he gave belief. Whether you realize this or not, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we will learn in the book of Thessalonians, God is the one that granted belief. He is the one that has sent the good news to you, and he is the one that has opened up your heart to that good news. Listen to how Paul puts the response the Thessalonians have. For we know, brothers, loved by God, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, and 9 through 10, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. God granted belief. Why? So that Thessalonians could be among they who lived happily ever after. God has granted belief to you because he wants you to be a part of the they. Good news, unlike advice, is intended to turn our world upside down. And it turned the Thessalonica world upside down. Thessalonica was an ancient Greek city. Okay, here's where I'm going to get a little historical. So for those of you who like history, you're going to totally geek out with me. And for those of you who don't, hang in there because it is important, okay? So keep each other awake. Thessalonica was an ancient Greek city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was a large city, 200,000 population when Paul came to it. It was a main route for both commerce and military. And as a result, it was rich in resources and cultures and an overabundance of deities and gods, like plethora. I know we don't use that word anymore, but it's like the right word. There was a plethora of gods everywhere. Its location reflected its religious life. There was the worshiping of all kinds of gods of the sea, protection and provision. Thessalonica had a long and wide history of merging cultures, missionaries with good advice, so-called. There was astrology, mysticism, dreams, demons that filled the air. There were Greek and Egyptian gods, temples and monuments, mythological figures as well as human figures were worshipped. Statues were erected randomly to thank and to expect from particular gods, and sometimes they were human, pictures of humans. There was a small Jewish community that also existed in this religiously complex city where gods played a major role in every aspect of life. You didn't do anything or go anywhere without consulting your gods from birth to death and every event in between. Now, before we say this sounds incredibly foreign, I cannot relate, let's think about it for a minute. Don't we have our temples? Don't we have our monuments? We have high-rise offices. We have stadiums and we have arenas. And not to just pick on the boys, but we've got malls, right? I just recently saw the movie Concussion. And if you haven't seen it yet, it's a very fascinating story, um, true story of, of discovering what football has done to men who've been over and over and over again had concussions. And one of the things one of the guys talks about when they're thinking about taking on the NFL, he's like, you do know what you're doing? We can't take on the NFL. They own a day of the week that the church used to own. <laughs> Ouch. We all have idols, ladies. They may be our homes. They may be our families. They may be the cosmetic counter. They may be food. They may be all kinds of pleasures. Anything you run to for comfort or look to for hope is an idol. They play roles in every aspect of our life, every event, every difficulty, every joy. We turn to things. John Calvin writes, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from his or her mother's womb, an expert in inventing idols. No longer do we kill one, recognize one, and walk away from it, turn from it to the living God, then do we spin out a new one. But the worship of these Thessalonian gods, not unlike some of ours, not only encouraged, 
but expected pleasure-seeking through drunkenness and sexual perversion. Got a picture now of where these people were living. To respond to the gospel was to walk away from life as they knew it. And for you and I, ladies, it is the same. In Thessalonica, religion was inseparable from politics, from economics, and from family. To break from their gods was to break from their city, to break from their family, to ruin their status. Now, don't misunderstand. They could add a god. That was fine. If they wanted to add Jesus, that'd be okay. But that's not, what they, that's not the gospel. They had to turn from all other gods to the living God, and this was huge. And the only explanation for their conversion, the only explanation that they would risk so much is that it was God's will and it was God's work that the Thessalonians might be among those who live forever. So it was not Paul's idea to go to Thessalonica. It was God's. And we know this from the book of Acts, which is exciting and complex story of the birth of the Christian church. We find that Paul is given a vision by God that reroutes him to Macedonia. He's trying to go every other direction but west, but God sends, gives him a vision of a Macedonian man that says, come. And so Paul, knowing it's God, he goes. And Paul's journey into Macedonia, beginning with Philippi, was marked by conversions, but also severe persecution. When Paul came to Thessalonica, he had just been jailed with Silas. He had been beaten. God miraculously freed them from that jail, but that's where he came from. And he came to Thessalonica. Paul entered the Jewish synagogue, as he always did. He said, I begin with the Jews first and then the Gentiles. Those who responded to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, were mostly God-fearing Gentiles. There was this interesting group of Gentiles. Maybe they were weary of all their gods. There was this interesting group of Greeks that were really drawn to Judaism and that monotheism, one God. And so they hung out with them. Now, they didn't quite convert. They didn't get circumcised, but they liked to hang with the Jews. They found something there that they didn't see in their own culture. And mostly those were who were converted by the gospel. But after just a few short weeks, those who didn't respond to the gospel responded by becoming a mob. And they drove Paul and Timothy and Silas out of Thessalonica. To protect the new converts, Paul and Silas and Timothy left but they left only physically. For they had not just given the Thessalonians the good news, they had given them their hearts. Hear Paul's heart as he recounts his time with them. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Amazing. Just a few short weeks. What we will see throughout Paul's letters to the Thessalonians is affectionate love for the Thessalonians. Because he gets, he knows, they have joined his life forever. Paul, throughout Thessalonians, we're going to see over 25 times, he calls these men and women he hardly knew brothers 25 times. And listen to how he says it. I mean, it's just wrapped in all kinds of affection and commitment. Brothers loved by God that he has chosen. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. 
For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Brothers, pray for us. Finally, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And on and on, brothers, brothers, brothers. When Michelle and I were first invited to go to Central Asia to work with the underground church, we were being introduced by somebody else who had invited us to come. And yet I did get an email from one of the leaders that we were going to meet. And she, in the email, she writes um, about, about Michelle and I as her sisters. And I thought that was super weird. I thought that was like only the language of cults or something. Like, why is she calling me a sister? Like, she's never even met me. And it was very odd to me. And for some of you, maybe walking in here and this whole idea of sister to sister, and when I say, Good morning, sisters. You're probably like, ooh, that's a little too, you're not my sister. It's a little weird for you. <laughs> so know that I thought it was pretty weird. I was weirded out by it too. We hadn't even met yet, yet she understood what I didn't. That the moment we met, that relationship would go on into eternity. That's amazing. She knew that the moment we met, our relationship would go on longer than most of the people in her Muslim family. And the relationship I have with her will go on longer unless some of them repent than some of the people that I've grown up with my whole life. She knew what I didn't know, what I didn't get. Our relationship will be eternal. What Michelle and I didn't know then is that this G girl would be betrayed after we had met her and become sisters, would be betrayed by her husband first and then by the underground church. And she let us be part of her healing and her restoration. There was one day we sat on a bed eating chocolate, and she just looked at us and said, tell me if you've ever been betrayed. Show me how to walk through this. She let us in. We don't speak the same language. We didn't come from the same background. We don't live in any cultures, anything alike. And yet we were sisters. We are sisters. See, that Paul and Timothy and Silas could become brothers and then call the Thessalonian brothers was not natural. It was about as weird as it gets. Paul killed Christians. Silas was a leader in the church of Jerusalem, the mother church. Timothy was half Greek. And then these Thessalonians, idol worshipers, formerly. And not only does Paul call them brothers, but Paul is also assuming that he is their brother. This Paul desires to happen among them, that these Thessalonians believers know that they are together with him forever, and they are together forever. See, Paul, throughout Thessalonians, we're going to see him stress the importance of Christian community that cannot be overestimated. Paul knew that this little church would never survive, much less thrive, unless they were knitted together as brothers and sisters. And this is true of us, ladies. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, says, Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Ouch. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. I had this conversation with one of my girls recently, and I've had it with every one of my children. You know, they go through a stage where they like to be alone. Mothers of little guys, it's coming. I tell you, we will go potty alone. Um, they get to an age where they like to be alone. You want to follow them into the bathroom. And what I've shared with each one of them is be careful when you're alone. Be careful. Don't ever be completely alone. When you are alone, open the Bible. Because when you are alone, the voices that will come are usually not 
the voices you should be listening to. There's danger in being alone. Voices that are out to harm us, and sometimes our own voice is the very worst of all. Absolute loyalty and concern for every aspect of each other's lives makes Christianity distinct from all other religions. It is not private, ladies. Your faith is not private. Your faith impacts mine. My faith impacts yours. How we live matters. Loyalty and concern for every aspect of each other's lives is what makes Christianity distinct from all other religions. And honestly, ladies, it is what causes those who do not know Jesus to be drawn to us. Key to community, as we will find in the book of Thessalonians, is new identity. Separating ourselves from who we were and coming together and belonging to something brand new. Throughout Thessalonians, we will see terms of separation turned to God from idols not grieve as others, not of the night. We will also see terms of belonging, chosen. God has chosen you out into his own kingdom and glory. You are children of the light, children of the day. You are worthy of his calling. You have the name of Jesus glorified in you, and the Lord is with you. We have been brought into forever. The Thessalonians and you and I are brought into a new and radical way of seeing and experiencing life together, living as if we are forever. So first of all, the message of Thessalonians is that God has made a way for us to be brought into forever that is together. Now the challenge is that we live together in a way that reminds each other that we are forever. I'll say it again. The message of Thessalonians is that God has made a way for us to be brought into a forever that is together. The challenge for us, if we've already been brought in, if we are believers, is to live together in a way that we remind each other that we are forever. Okay, here we go. Though Paul was encouraged by their growing faith, love, and perseverance, the Thessalonians had not yet fully seen and experienced the reality that they belong to each other forever. And I think this is something sadly missing in the church. We are so independent. We are so individualistic, particularly in our culture. We don't belong to anyone. We want our Christianity to be private. No one can judge us. No one can tell us what to do. We get to do what we want. That is not the message of the scriptures. For our good, we have been brought together. We belong together forever. They had yet to see, and many of us too, how the reality of being forever, being eternal people, impacts how we come together. One example I had of this is that when I, in the past when I've had issues with friendships, conflict, offenses, my husband will often ask me, is the friendship worth working on? If it is, work it out. Don't you love it how men just are so succinct? <laughs> like, that could be a two-hour conversation with a woman. I'm learning to talk to him more. (laughs) If we see friendship as lifelong, if we see a particular friendship as lifelong, we'll work it out. We'll forgive. We'll receive forgiveness. We'll move forward. We'll take turns being weak. We'll take turns being strong. We'll take turns suffering. We'll take turns rejoicing. If we don't see the friendship as lifelong, we are far more likely only to stay 
in the friendship as long as our needs are being met or as long as she's appreciating the fact that we're meeting her needs, right? Imagine the impact if we truly saw every relationship as eternal and each other as not mere mortals. Ladies, relationships among believers are eternal. Any woman you met today, that was the beginning of an eternal relationship. Relationships among believers are eternal, and believers are immortal. We will live forever. C.S. Lewis in Weight of Glory says, It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. That's one of my favorite parts of Tim Keller's book on the meaning of marriage. He talks about the importance of seeing marriage as contributing to someone becoming like Christ. I see your journey into becoming someone that is more like Christ, and I want to be part of it. God is in the process of eternally transforming those around us, and we get to be part of it. Out of love for his brothers and sisters and to further their living together in a way that reminds each other that they are forever, Paul confronts issues and sins that destroy belonging. And these we will unpack in the weeks ahead, but just to give you a taste. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passionate lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. We urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. What was likely leading to these issues, this wrong thinking, was wrong thinking about the return of Christ. Like you and me, the Thessalonians lived in between the first and second coming of Jesus. From the time he came as a babe to defeat sin and evil and when he would return and end evil and sin. They were anticipating the day when, he would, when they would finally get to live outside of time and space, escape death, enjoy perfect unending love, and see evil finally triumphed. In the waiting, they suffered, and many that they loved had died. Their suffering left them vulnerable to false teachings that Jesus had already returned and is powerless over evil and death, or he's not coming at all. And isn't this true for us? Suffering makes us wonder, will there ever be an end to suffering and death? Will this ever end? Will Jesus ever return, or has he already returned and he's just powerless? Wrong beliefs about the day of the Lord will shake our faith and so threaten our growth. It did for the Thessalonians, and it will for us. And this is why the letters of Thessalonians are filled with the return of the Lord. A fourth of 1 Thessalonians, every single chapter mentions it, and half of 2 Thessalonians addresses the return of Jesus. Forgetting he is returning was what was leading to many of these sins. We cannot make good sense of today when there is no hope of his return. 
And so Paul writes, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do or who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And ladies, in 2 Thessalonians, it is packed with information about the return of the Lord. Why? That we might remember we live forever together. Paul so desires to strengthen understanding concerning Jesus' return so that the Thessalonians will live like they know how it's going to end. Almost all sin is is contributed to by forgetting how it's going to end. When we forget Jesus is returning, when we forget that happiness awaits for us, perfection awaits for us, we are far more likely to turn to those idols or churn out more idols. We are far more likely to not suffer well. We are far more likely to not fight against temptation and sin and addiction. But when we know, when we are convinced of how it's going to end, when we know he is returning, we then press into that belonging. When we lose sight of his return, we will fall into the sins that destroy belonging, destroy community, destroy ourselves. The idol factory of our heart will go into overdrive. As we wait for his return, we will face suffering. Many of you are in this room right now. That without the truths we need regarding his, his return will shake our faith and threaten our growth. That he is yet to return to fully restore us is part of why we need each other. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need each other to not only remind one another of what is to come, But in doing so, we get a foretaste of it now. By strengthening the Thessalonians in the truth of forever, the Thessalonians were strengthened in together. And this is what lies ahead for us. My hope and my prayer is that we will take this opportunity we have right now, this freedom, ladies, that we have to be in his word, the freedom of choice to get to be here Take this opportunity in the coming weeks to not forget how it all ends because we forget really quickly. The timeless message for us sent to the Thessalonians is how God has made a way by sending us his son for us to be brought into the story for which we belong. Tim Keller puts it this way, the gospel is the story that all other joy-bringing, spell-casting, heart-shaping stories only point to. It is the story that satisfies our longings, yet is historically true. If Jesus was raised from the dead, if he is the son of God and we believe in him, all we long for will come true. We will escape time and death. We will know love without loss. We will see evil defeated forever. For more than being certain that Walt Disney could never have ended Cinderella too realistically, leaving her hopeless, Our author, our creator, gave his one and only son to assure us that our ending is happily ever after. He surrendered to time and space. He did not escape death. He did defeat evil, that we might be brought into a perfect, unending love. 
Will we recognize God's bringing us together around his word in this place so that we might be assured and further experience our foreverness? To do this, we need each other's voices. Fear being alone if you've not been together around the word. And if you're new and you get confused and the study's hard, hang in there. I was up all night rereading the book of Acts because I'm getting confused. And I've known the Lord for 30 years and I've been teaching the Bible for 20 years. And I still have trouble finding where certain things are and remembering facts. So just be okay, be okay with that. No, we're not expecting you to get it. Just hang in there. Keep at it. Jump in. Get, get what God wants to give to you. We need to let each other into every area of our life that we might become a distinctive community of sisters, drawing those outside in. God has given us the opportunity by his spirit around his word in community to be used by him to tell his story, his story that is both historically true and satisfies all our longings. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Will we? Father, I pray that it would be so. Thank you that you have already done the first part. We will always be with you together. Thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit and the challenge of your word that is for your glory and our good that we therefore encourage one another with these words. May this place in the weeks ahead be a place where we are each encouraged with these words. Again, for your glory and our good. Amen. Thank you, Patty, and thank you, Lord, for this time together. So we just want to close with